It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. So you're tuned into this program, and it's a safe bet like me. You scour the internet looking at motorcycles for sale probably on a daily basis. Recently, one website has gained a ton of traffic and always seems to have some very presentable classic airheads for sale. I'm talking about Bring a Trailer. Now, this episode is not about Bring a Trailer necessarily, but about a fellow called David Lee, who's listed and sold nearly a dozen classic airheads on that site over the past three or four years. I've always been impressed with his offerings and attention to detail on the bikes he sells, we met when he contacted me about a R60-6 I had for sale a few years back. Now, he didn't buy the bike, but we ended up having a great phone chat, found out we had some additional concentric circles aside from BMWs. That was our history as touring musicians. So we'll explore David's history as a musician, how he got started with airheads, chat about his philosophy of buying and selling bikes, so let's dig into it. It's David Lee on the Airhead 247 podcast. Uh, we're on the phone uh, with David Lee. And David, uh, the first thing my wife said to me, she said, well, who are you interviewing next week? I said, well, it's this fella called David Lee. The first thing out of her mouth was one, two, three. Look at Mr. Lee, three, four, five. Ah, that's beautiful. Yeah, so, I mean, do you get that often, or is that too old a reference for some people? You know, you'd be surprised. A lot of people know that song. I think it's uh, stood the test of time pretty well. And definitely, you know, a lot of people refer to me as Mr. Lee. Do they really? Oh, yeah. That's a great name. I'm I'm okay with it. Well, well, you should be, yeah. Um, So... I think it's kind of interesting to note how you and I sort of informally met uh, via a motorcycle ad I had placed a few years ago. So I had a blue 76, uh, 60-6 for sale on a few different places, and I got a note from you inquiring about it, and we had a chance to visit on the phone a little bit, so... That was kind of the first time we met. We quickly discovered we had uh, not only our love for airhead motorcycles in common, but also uh, we worked as musicians for a long time. So I want to ask you about that first and ask you about playing with the legendary uh, Shack Shakers. So are you, first of all, are you still doing that? Uh, no, I left the band uh, in the late 2009, 2010 era. Um, as you know, the uh, the music business is uh, is a tough place, and we were doing 250 shows a year for almost a decade, and um, you know I just felt like it had kind of run its course, and I was looking for uh, to dial it back a little bit. It wears you out, 
you know, and you know that firsthand from being out there in the trenches. I mean, it, it, uh, it gets pretty, pretty long and hard. Yeah. And when you say 250 shows a year, uh, you're doing U.S. and uh, international dates, I presume, right? That's right. We spent probably three to four months out of the year in Europe. Um, usually once or twice, maybe three times we would go over and stay for, you know, six weeks at a time and, you know, go all the way from 500 kilometers north of the Arctic Circle up in uh, Trumps in Norway to Croatia and Serbia and, you know, you name it, we've been there. So I loved it. I mean, it was, it was a different era back then, you know. I, I It's funny with the uh, the whole pandemic and border closings and everything, I, I, I feel for my musician brethren, um, you know, it's going to be a tough new world out there, I think. So you were in the group, you say, for about 10 years or the better part of That's a decade? Right. That's right. <clears throat> yeah, that is, um, it's a tough, it's a fun, but a tough way to make a living. Uh, folks from the outside will say, gosh, you know, how can you complain about uh, playing music for two hours and then drinking beer and, and hanging out uh, afterwards. Uh, the problem is that's fun. It's the hours in between where you're driving or trying to work on some other things that you just don't have time to do that really make it a grind. So, yeah, I did it for about five years and came to that realization probably a little bit quicker than you did. Yeah, you know, and, and you're exactly right. The, the being on stage is just the magic, you know, that's, that's the icing on the cake. It is definitely the travel and the late nights and, you know, fly days and, hey, where's the drummer and, you know, all the stuff that, that goes on in the midst of it that is the, that's the adventure that just kind of after, after a year after year, it sort of starts wearing on you and you go, man, there's got to be another life. Somewhere yeah. out there. Look, I'm sure you can relate to this. I can think of a few uh, trips, a uh, few tours and places I've been. For instance, doing a residency at the uh, Green Parrot in uh, Key West. I don't know if you've ever been there. Or just going down to New Orleans for a week and playing. And, you know, I'd be down there for a week or two on one of those gigs. But honestly, when I left, I felt like I had lost a good six months of my life just on that one week. <laughs> right. Right. The time space continuum definitely shifts <laughs> when you are, when you are out on the road, it is, uh, it, it's a strange dynamic. Uh, no doubt. I, I never played Key West. I definitely played Florida a lot. And, and we, we weren't the kind of band that did like a residency, um, which, you know, I, I, I enjoyed the, the every night going from place to place. And, and you know, I, I was a bicycle guy. I think we talked about this before. So, and then that sort of segued me into motorcycles and maybe we'll get to that later, but I always had a bicycle with me and I had a locker in London where I kept a bicycle and a guitar and, and some pedals and stuff. Cause we were going back and forth enough that it didn't make sense to keep dealing with, you know, carrying the stuff. Our bass player used a double bass, you know, an upright bass. So he would leave that in the locker. And, um, I was fortunate cause every day, you know, I was out riding around, you know, climbing Alpe d'Huez in France or riding along the Mediterranean uh, in Monaco and, and seeing the sights, you know, so I did get an extra sense of, um, you know, adventure and kind of being out there and not just like the, the club scene every night. So that was, that was pretty cool. Wow. Good for you. Yeah. Really taking advantage of, um, you know, I don't want to say those free travel miles, but uh, taking advantage of the time to do what you can when you're out touring like that. That's great. Yeah, it was good, definitely. So, I mean, are you still friendly with the guys in the band? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. We talk all the time, um, especially the bass player and I. He um, is a big cycling guy as well, bicycling. And um, we talk all the time about, you know, we still follow the pro cycling circuit and the races and the Tour of Italy and the Tour de France and all that stuff. So we, we text message each other just yesterday talking about the Tour de France is coming up. So we, you know, went on and on about, you know, who's going to win it, blah, blah, blah. Um, the band, they're still together in a totally different incarnation. J.D., the singer and main songwriter, is still out there, man, still cranking it out, you know, super talented guy, crazy good in, in all directions, and uh, he's just still out there pounding the same circuit. You know, you at some point, as you know, you get to a level with a band that you sort of start thinking, man, is this as far as it's going to go? Uh, as far as popularity and that sort of thing, and that's when you kind of have to make some decisions about like life, and you're like, is this a game plan for me to like carry on into my 60s or 70s or wherever? You know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I still play the guitar every day, and I still, you know, I still work on music and stuff. And I, and before the pandemic, I put together a little three-piece rock and roll trio here in Charleston, and with the intention of doing some light touring and some gigs because I really do miss. You know, and I'm sure you do too, like, you know, getting up on stage and you know, setting up your gear, making the noise, you know, and, and like, it's use it or lose it. You know, if you don't practice the stuff, your chops slide away. Um, and so, uh, you know, who knows? I'll, I'll, I'll be back out there one day doing some stuff for sure. Once you get all this COVID behind us and upwards and onwards, right? Yeah. You know, it's funny. <clears throat> I, I, you were just mentioning those things. And yeah, you know. There's part of me that misses doing the gigs and getting up on stage and the crowd and all that stuff. But few folks have asked me about that. And really, what I think I miss the most is kind of the camaraderie with the guys on the road and, you know, just doing the silly things. It's a lot like, you know, you hear former athletes or baseball players say, you know, it's the time in the clubhouse and the hanging around with the guys and the stuff that they tend to miss the most. And for me, that's kind of where 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 that is. Oh, yeah. No, no, definitely. And, you know, people don't understand, you know, that that is really one of the most underrated aspects of being in a touring band, right? You got to have the chops. You got to be able to play. You know, you can't be a train wreck. But it's it's like 95% of the hang, you know, you're in the van or the bus all day long. And, and you, you want to be around guys that have a similar sense of humor and, kind of, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. And, and I do look back and, and, and definitely miss that camaraderie and the conversations and, you know, the life experiences. I mean, a, as you know, it changes you, you know, being out there and being with a band and, and doing that stuff. I mean, it, it shapes your life in a way. It gives you these experiences that most people don't ever get, you know, and, um, so I'm thankful for the opportunity, and it was what a great run. And, you know, we still kick the thought about doing it, like, 20th anniversary or something. You know, maybe we'll see it happen. You know, I, I don't know the pandemic once again. I, I'm just glad to see the clubs are all opening back up, and I'm seeing bands on Instagram putting up tour dates, and guys are trying to get back to Europe, and it's exciting for everybody. I think it's going to be well-received. Well, awesome. That's uh, that's good. I'm glad we got a chance to visit about that. Uh, we definitely share some common ground there. So let's get... Uh, to some Airhead BMW stuff. So first, I want to ask you what you you mentioned Charleston. So I'm you're somewhere in South Carolina right now. Is that home base for you? That's right. That's right. Charleston is where was my birth city. Um, I left here obviously uh, when I could when I was uh, spreading my wings a bit. I lived in Atlanta and then I moved to Nashville and that's where the Shack Shakers were based out of. And then uh, I eventually made my way back to Charleston. I've been back here uh, like seven or eight years now. Okay. Um, 
And, uh, yeah, it's, it's home. It's changed a lot, but it's great. I mean, it's a port city, you know, and uh, it, it's, it's pretty nice, actually. So this is pretty this is kind of a real basic interview question here, uh, but I have to ask it. So what was the first uh, sort of classic airhead BMW you bought? Do you remember? I do. Yeah, it was an R60 slash two um, in my teens. And uh, so I was a bicycle guy, you know, I, like I was talking about with the Tour de France and stuff. I've always been uh, obsessed with bicycles as a child. I started racing BMX bicycles and that segued me into like racing road bicycles, you know, like the Tour de France style. And I, I raced at a pretty high level here in America. I never raced abroad. And um, so when I got my driver's license, you know, obviously that was like already I was looking at motorcycles because if you like bicycles, you're going to like motorcycles, right? I mean, it's just natural progression. And a friend of my father's had an R60 or R50 or R60 slash two. And um, so it was kind of by default that I was able to to get introduced to that world like early on. And, and once I rode those, I just thought, man, these things are just amazing. And, and thus began the you know, love affair. Thirty some odd years later, I'm still chasing them. You know? Now, did you buy that uh, bike from him, and you know that was the first one you owned? No, he helped me find one on, in the classified section here in here in Charleston, and it was a, it was an R60 slash two. It had the sport tank. I didn't really even know, you know, the differences, and you know, back then I was a total greenhorn. Um, but I remember the bike fondly. I've got photographs of it still. Um, it was a it was a sport tank R60 slash two. Um, it had a lot of patina. It was pretty roached out, but it ran great. I think it had 60 or 70,000 miles on it. And, um, you know, he, he taught me a lot about maintenance and about, you know, tearing an engine apart and how the slingers work and all, all that stuff, you know, gearbox shimming. And it, it was, a, it was just a blessing really. Wow. Yeah. I was going to ask you about a couple of those things, but so what year was that? And do you remember what you paid for it? Yeah, that was 1986. Five, and I think I paid twelve hundred bucks. <laughs> oh man, isn't that crazy? Yeah. To think about those yeah. prices. I mean, it's of course it's all relative when you think it was yeah. nineteen eighty five, but still. Yeah, uh, no, it's incredible. I can remember. I mean, I, luckily I've been blessed with a good memory, and I remember all these stupid little details. But the guy had it in a storage locker, um, really not far from where my warehouse is now. You know, here we are, like what forty years, we're pushing forty years later, and. Um, and we went over there, and he, it, it was just like, I found it in the local newspaper. And we went over there, the guy, my friend's dad, I mean, my, my father's friend went with me, and we pulled it out. It was covered in sawdust, you know, the usual drill. And uh, God knows how old the gasoline was in it, and pulled it out and turned the fuel on. And, man, it started in one kick. It had been sitting probably for five years. It started right up. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Testament to those bikes, you know, with the Magneto. It's unbelievable how the Slash 2s with a mag, it still will spark after sitting, you know, it's, it's un unbelievable, really. Yeah. So you mentioned when you got it, your sort of uh, mentor, your your buddy's father, uh, sort of introduced you to twisting the wrenches and stuff. So might I take that uh, to say you sort of got down and dirty with getting in and cleaning the oil slingers, taking the transmission apart and actually re-shimming re it and uh, measuring all the clearances and everything off the bat? Or did that was that something you developed later? Well, he told me, you know, he, he told me about how the, the filtration system with the slingers works, right, and said, man, that's something we really need to, to get into. 
um, because we don't want to destroy the crank or the main bearings. And uh, so we got into that. I think in the first six months I owned it, we did it. You know, I rode it for because I was like, you know, I was 15, man. I was like, man, I want to ride this thing, you know. And he's like, well, the engine sounds healthy, but there's no way to know if it's ever been done. You know, at that point, the bike was, I think it was like a 61 or 62. I don't remember the year of it. So it was, you know, 25 or 30 years old. And um, so, yeah, so, so then uh, we did that. And then when the transmission was out, he was like, well, we may as well go ahead in here and, you know, take a look and I'll show you how this works. And, and you know that just began the began the process, kind of on an as needed basis, you know. But the, but the bike was in pretty good nick, as I remember. The slingers were like halfway full, so it wasn't it wasn't imminent disaster. But you know, we um, he, he taught me then to just replace them rather than the clean out trick because you know they get like peened over on the ends of the crank, and you just don't want to risk one of them coming loose or damaging or something. So he set me up for a good you know a good lesson to to hold on to for the rest of my life. And how, do you remember how long you had that bike and then what what its eventual fate was? Uh, when you, you know, see- yeah, I had that bike. I had that bike for probably, I bet I had it like 10 years, I think. And then, um, you know, I started getting back real into heavy, into playing music again. And, uh, you know, I was in high school and playing in bands. And it just kind of went by the wayside. And um, and somebody offered, I had it parked out somewhere. Someone offered me, I think, 2500 bucks for it. And uh, and I let it rip in a weak moment. Wow! So that was in '95, uh, I guess. If I'm doing, yeah, give or take. Yeah, that doing, right. doing my math right. So yeah, wow. Well, so that's even a good price back then. I think so. Hmm. You could find them back then, you know. Definitely. I mean, uh, you know that that bike was the segue for me. You know, figuring out there were a lot of other cool motorcycles out there too. And that, you know, I got into the British stuff and I rode a Norton commando and I saw, felt that power. And I was like, Oh, this is cool. You know? And then, and then I, um, I found the R 75 five, you know, which was such a great machine, you know, so it's opened the door for me for all the, the post-war bikes, you know, and, and the love affair. So uh, the Slash 5, you're saying, then, was the next bike in, in your uh, Airhead uh, line? That's right. I, I bought a Commando in between that, in that period, which I still have that Commando, by the way. Not to jump ship from Norton's, from... Uh, no, that's, that's fine, that's fine. But, yeah, yeah, but I, but I got a Norton, and then I ended up um, looking at the Slash 5 series, and a friend of mine had a R75-5, a red toaster tank, that someone had put a big bore kit on. I think it was 900 cc's. I never took it off and mic'd it, but I'm pretty sure it was 900 because the thing was like crazy fast. Probably had a race cam in it. Um, it had the bigger bings. And um, so, yeah, so that was when I got into the Slash 5. And how long did you have that bike? I had that bike all the way until the Shack Shakers. So, so I was 2002 or three, and I was on tour and once again, a buddy of mine had reached out. He had ridden the bike before and knew that it was fast, and he really liked it. And he rang me up while I was on tour and said, Hey, man, um, do you have any interest in selling me that, that Slash 5? And uh, I said, Yeah, I'll sell it. And so I sold it to him, and then he ended up selling it to uh, Elton John's drummer. The uh, Nigel, uh, what's his face? The- that sounds right. Uh, they, were play- they were playing in Charleston. Somehow they connected, and he ended up buying it. That's now that's an amazing story. So <clears throat> I'm trying. It, I want to say Nigel Olson. I don't know if that's if that's right. 
uh, as far yeah, as... Yeah, I wasn't part of that deal. He just told me later, he's like, hey, you're not going to believe who bought this thing. I can't remember if he rode it out there to the gig. I think they played out in the North Charleston Coliseum, and uh, the guy saw it and just wanted it. And maybe it could have been his guitar, his drum tech. I, you know, I don't sure, know exactly. Sure. I, I wasn't there, but he said it was, he, he said, quote, Elton John's drummer. Yeah, that sounds more legit, and it makes the story more fascinating than if it was a roadie, right? <laughs> One of the reasons so many airheads are still on the road today is because of great parts suppliers and enthusiasts like Boxer 2 Valve. William and Edward Plam at Boxer 2 Valve have years of experience with the 247 airhead, dating back to their first repair shop and dealership in the early 1980s. Boxer 2 Valve stocks and sources only premium parts and tools, so no need to worry if you're getting a cheap pattern or shortcut part. They simply don't carry them. Boxer 2 Valve has extensively researched which parts are correct for your motorcycle. Just enter your year and model and you'll see only the parts that fit your bike. That takes the guesswork out of the ordering process. Real-time stock information that is also available, so no need to guess what may be on back order that could delay your project. Also, if you're digging into a repair for the first time, be sure to check out Boxer 2 Valve's video repair series. These cover both Twin Shock and Post 81 models and are great tutorials that go step-by-step -step through a variety of repairs and parts replacement procedures. The video series is a great workshop companion one I've used many times over the years. So for all your airhead parts needs, Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two, Boxer2Valve.com. Uh, all right, so you alluded to Norton Commando. You mentioned some British bikes. Uh, and, you know, all of us who love BMW airheads, all, most of us all also love uh, other bikes as well. Uh, but I do want to ask you here, um, what in your mind keeps you coming back to the classic Airhead BMWs um, and and differentiates them, I guess, a little bit from some of the, uh, you know, from a Moto Guzzi or a Norton or, or a Triumph? What what sets those out in your mind? Okay. Um, let's see. I've never owned a Moto Guzzi, if you can believe that. I think I've owned every other kind of motorcycle that there is under the sun. Never had a Guzzi. And it wasn't because I didn't like them. It just, I'm a Ducati guy, right? So I think with that sort of world, either you're like a Ducati guy or a Guzzi guy, you know, and I don't know it. And it, I've tried to buy Guzzi's over the years and it's just like never worked out for some reason. Um, and I'm a Norton guy, not a Triumph guy, even though I've owned Triumphs, right? So, um, but I'd always come back to the Beamers for a number of reasons. Uh, the first one being the story that I told about my first Slash 2. The bikes will always start. <laughs> they, they, God bless them, they can be neglected, you know, not taken care of in the least, set up for years on end. You go there, there won't be a drop of oil underneath them. And you put some decent gas in the thing, and, you know, maybe the floats are stuck or the carb's not perfect or whatever, but the damn thing will start. Uh, cannot say that about British bikes. Yeah, that's funny. I, I, I've had that exam, same exact thought, too. The word I've always used is forgiving. Uh, you know, in my 20-plus years of owning these bikes, I look back and think about some of the things I've 
jacked up wrenching on it or thought I fixed something and didn't or whatever. But in spite of my, all my uh, worst efforts, uh, the bike would still run. It would still get me home and it would still start in the morning. And uh, I, I'll have to agree with you on that. That's probably one of the more endearing qualities of those bikes. All right, so here's another thing I want to talk to you about, and we'll dig into maybe a little bit more Airhead-specific stuff here at the end, uh, okay. a little later on, is what you've done on Bring a Trailer uh, on the auction website here. Uh, I did a quick sort of overview of your history on there, and I guess the first bike you sold was in back in 2018. Uh, so first, tell me how you found out about that site. Um, I had heard about it and visited it years ago when it was not an auction site, when it was just, um, it was a, it was a blog basically of, you know, them pulling together interesting and weird and good deals and all that sort of stuff from various, you know, for sale sites on the interwebs, right? Like Craigslist. At the time, Facebook Marketplace wasn't happening. So it was mostly like, it was mostly Craigslist, honestly. And they would just post up every day, like, look at this, blah, 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 check it out. You can find it here. Okay. So there, it was a cool site to visit and look at stuff because the guy was obviously perusing the, you know, web hard looking for cool, cool cars, cool motorcycles, you know, boats, you name it, man. It was on there, right? So, you know, fast forward years later, and so I, I had been buying motorcycles and working on motorcycles as, as a hobby, you know. I mean, it still really is a hobby for me. I mean, I, I sell bikes, but I really just do it for a love of these machines, you know. And uh, I love the chase. It kind of fulfills the missing of me being on the road with the bands going and, like, you know, exploring America and, like, pulling these bikes out of barns and pulling them out of um, collections and guys that know me from long ago. Some of these guys know me from the Shack Shakers days. And they know that I'm a motorcycle freak, and they, they like to interact with me, and, and we just, you know, do deals and that sort of thing. So a friend of mine in 2018 reaches out to me and says, hey, man, you really should, should check out Bring a Trailer for selling a motorcycle or two, because there's a great audience on there. Um, it's a really cool uh, social media platform, really, which is what it is. I mean, it's an auction site, but it is definitely a social media platform of a lot of guys who love um, creative, interesting people doing cool stuff and selling cool cars and some motorcycles. And so I thought, okay, cool. You know, and I looked at it and I saw they, they like, you know, had like maybe one or two motorcycles on there at the time. Maybe not even that. It's mostly cars. And so I, I submitted a bike and they rejected it. And, um, what was it? Real I, it was, uh, it was an R, I think it was an R100 slash seven. It was an R100 slash seven that I had. And, and I just, you know, I took a bunch of good photos and submitted it. And, um, and they, I just got a real kind of generic, like, um, yeah, thanks for submitting, but we're not interested this time. And I, I was I was bummed, you know. I was like, oh man, that sucks. I wonder what what I did wrong or whatever, you know. And um, so, but you know, I'm very persistent, <laughs> and so I just like kept on, you know. I just kept like submitting things, and finally, I, I think they rejected another an R100. I had a yeah, I had an R100 RT smoke red that had like ten thousand miles on it. The bike was immaculate, and they rejected it. So finally, but but that time I got a little more detailed response from someone, 
And I think it was Howard. I can't remember who wrote me back, but it was someone, and he just said, hey, thanks for submitting. We're just not doing very many motorcycles right now. And I was like, okay, cool. And so I sent him a picture of my warehouse and just said, hey, man, I, I'm, I really want to get on this site. It looks like a lot of fun. And it seems like a really good community. Uh, you know, is there anything in here that you see that, you're, that interests you, that, that you would take for a submission? And uh, they said, hey, I, we really like that R100 uh, motorsport. Um, and I said, okay. And they said, will you run it with no reserve? And I was like, sure. And so <laughs> that was it, man. And, you know, that one uh, went on. And I just love the whole dynamic of, like, you know, doing the photography, doing the videos, the, the chit-chat and the bottom of the auction. Um, it's a very, very um, interesting and exciting world over there. And, uh, and, and that's been it, man. I, I've just been selling lots of, I mean, that's pretty much the only place I sell my motorcycles, honestly. I mean, I just, I just have so much fun with it that it's, um, why, why do it elsewhere? Right. Yeah. So yeah, that, uh, 78 RS motorsport sold for a uh, little, I think it was 12, 12 and a half thousand dollars, uh, back in 2008. Fast forward. 18, 2018. Or 2018. Thank you. Yes. That's right. Uh, fast forward to a couple weeks ago, and I don't know, maybe uh, 10 bikes later, you had an 84 uh, Classic Sport, uh, uh, the last edition that sold for $25,000, uh, which was That's a great. Right which is a great price uh, for that bike. So here's what I want to ask you. How do you, how do you, there, this is a multi-point question. How do you find these bikes and what uh, criteria uh, consist of a bike that you're going to list uh, on Bring a Trailer? Well, um, let's see. First off, you know, I like original paint and low mileage. Um, you know, I, I do total restorations on bikes all the time and I've got a really good pinstriper and I have a paint booth and you know we, we do this stuff to a super high standard but I'm just a sucker for original paint uh, hands down so so people know me now and like I, I brief, briefly spoke of a minute ago about guys that know me from the past and I've developed a relationship with a lot of guys in the motorcycle world and when things come up they call me you know and um they say, hey, I know where there's a couple of cool, you know, slash twos or R sixty nine S or a, there's a really nice R one hundred CS, um, you know, and I'm all ears, you know, like they send me photos. God bless, you know, modern telecommunications. You can jump on a FaceTime call or you know they send me pictures and and I, I've I've honed my eye about looking at photos over you know an iPhone or on the laptop or whatever where I I see things that I used to not see you know you just kind of see little things that are kind of giveaways like oh that's in good nick or oh, that's been parts been repainted or blah 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 and um so so that's how that part works and, and not all of them go to bring a trailer you know I, I love motorcycles so like I buy bikes and if I fall in love with things I mean it's the it's the never ending uh, dilemma about buying something and getting it all sorted out and then riding it like oh man this is a keeper you know it's I, always, I struggle with that always that's what I was going to ask you I mean some of those have to be hard to part with but then at the same time you realize uh, you know the bank account uh, can be hard to part with too. That's right. That's right. And, and you know, it, it, it funds other projects, right? I've gotten completely obsessed with the Vincents, you know, those bikes, right? I, sure. I've had, I've had one Vincent for 25 years, a Comet, a single cylinder, and then I bought a Black Shadow, and then another Black Shadow popped up, and then another Rapide popped up. And so, like, you know, to fund the Vincent, you know, craziness, 
I, I've been more inclined to get rid of some of the BMWs that I actually like loved and didn't really want to sell. But you know, uh, you got to like move things around sometimes. The, the Vincents are a whole other stratosphere of expense. Yeah, I know, believe me, I know how that goes. And wanted to touch on something you said just about the sort of original paint uh, bikes and you know low mileage. Yeah, that's one thing, uh, especially with the older Airhead the odometer is not always indicative of the miles that are on there. Um, you know, anything could happen there, but, uh, it is easy to tell original paint, especially with, uh, you know, go back to the mid seventies, like R 90 S. Uh, of course, you know, the telltale there is you can see the pinstripers initials on a lot of the, uh, body work, uh, on That's those, exactly right. Yeah. On those bikes. So, but I know what you're saying about the allure, uh, of the original uh, condition of the bike. And for me, um, you know, it's always been, you can look at that and it really becomes in some ways kind of a time machine uh, to be able to get on that and realize this is, a, is, it is how it was and it is how it is and it hasn't changed. And it can take, uh, take you back uh, in some ways to another place in time. And that's what I really enjoy about uh, the classic bikes, the classic airheads, but especially uh, ones, like you say, with uh, that are, are still in original condition. Definitely. And, you know, the Beamers, we should brush on that real quick. That's one thing, you know, talking about all the points about Beamers that I love. Everything on those bikes is just so well made. You know, I mean, the Speedos, right, the headlight in the cell, the, the control levers, like the wiring, you know, everything, you look at that compared to a British bike or a Japanese bike and, or an Italian bike, for God's sake, and, and it's so, it's just so feels like quality, you know, everything. And I'm talking about 50s and 60s bikes even, you know, the early ones. I don't have much experience with pre-war bikes. I've never owned one, I, not because I haven't. I haven't like looked. I just one has never kind of come my way, you know. And I feel like it, I have a 1950 R51 slash two, which was the first post-war twin, and then I have the next year, which is an R50 1951 R51 three, which is when they got rid of the twin cam and they went to like a single camshaft and the shorter push, longer push rods, and um, you know, basically the motor that they would carry out for forever. Um, and and those bikes still just feel so solid, you know? I mean, everything about them, nothing feels, you know, inexpensive or jonky, you know, and weird. And, and, like, you give them the least little bit of setup time, and it all just works so well. It's so true. It's so true. It's one, uh, again, one of the endearing qualities uh, that, that draw people to those bikes. A uh, couple more things on BAT. Um, okay. I don't want to ask you, I'm not going to, you know, put on my accountant hat and start rifling through your through your books here. Uh, but I want, I'm curious uh, of the ten or so bikes you've sold. I may be off a little bit. Most of them are you know mid seventies to mid or uh, to mid nineties. So you're kind of right in that uh, you're in that type two four seven wheelhouse and what you've been dealing with uh, here the past three or four years. What is if you can average it out? a typical sort of profit margin for you on a bike there? I know there's a high or a low, but uh, how does that work out for you? Uh, it's all over the map. Yeah. You know? I mean, if you, if you count all the hours that I spend on these things, 
I'd probably be better off, you know, saying, would you like fries with that? <laughs> you know, seriously, because it takes time to, to, you know, I go through these things like all the way through them, you know, everything that needs to be done, you know, you just, there's so many question marks, you just don't know, you know, so like you lift the top end, you reseal everything, you check the pistons and you check the ring gaps and you know, you hone the cylinders and then, you know, it just goes on and on. And that stuff, I mean, I, I, you know, it's funny, man. I feel like I'm a pretty quick mechanic, but at the end of the day, I'm like, Jesus, that just took me forever, you know? So I, I'm meticulous and kind of weird about not like scratching anything or doing anything weird to like even the fasteners or whatever. So I think that I move maybe slower than some mechanics do. So, you know, it, it's definitely not like, uh, it, it's not some like windfall situation. We'll just leave it at that. Right? Okay, F- fair enough. Fair enough. That that's a that's an honest answer. I, I I wanted to ask that. So one of the things about uh, BAT, they've got the comment section. Of course, one of the things about being on any online forum uh, is you know you're just going to have guys on there stirring shit up regardless. I mean, that's the nature of the beast. Uh, the rivet counters. <laughs> I don't get that reference. What's that mean? <laughs> Just the guys that go over every single minor thing. Oh, know? oh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. You know, that yeah, exactly. That yeah, this the something about uh, the pinstripe the pinstripes are, are too close uh on right or, or the the outside line is too wide or <laughs> you know that looks like not an original muffler. You know, in the music world I used to hear this when we played in Holland, Mirenuker. It's a Dutch word, and it's like the guy that comes up to you after the gig and says, hey, man, I mean, you're like drenched in sweat, possibly bloody. You know, you just played as hard as you could for like 90 minutes. You know, you're pretty destroyed. And he goes, you know, you guys are pretty good tonight, but the last time I saw you last year, man, that was really good. <laughs> you know? And so Mirenuker translates into ant fucker. <laughs> So, so yeah, they're mere oh, good that, lurk, that, lurk, that lurk in any any forum, right? And uh, you know, you just have to if you're if you don't have thick skin, it's not a good place to like put a motorcycle, right? Right, or a car or whatever. But if you do all your homework and you, you've you've answered all those questions before the thing even goes live, then you're in fine standing. You, you get guys that you know, and I get them, man. That like go after stuff and you know i just you need to say hey um yeah that's correct and that's correct and okay that's not the way that it looks and i'll be glad to jump on a facetime call with you or you can come by the warehouse and check it out or i can take it to an independent shop or whatever you want you know so since this program launched in march of 2022 we've heard from a number of you telling us how much you enjoy it so first off Thanks for tuning in, and thanks for supporting us. To help continue our efforts here, we've partnered with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who, coincidentally, are also fans and supporters of this program. The MOA is conducting a membership drive over the next several months. Their goal, to add 200 new members. And to help them do that, we're offering a free one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 listeners. The membership includes discounts at hotels, their monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistance programs, and a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. To sign up, visit 247.bmwmoa.org. Complete the online form and use the activation code AIRHEAD 
1-800-227-5247. Or go to the description section in this podcast. We've popped a direct link right there. We want to say thank you to the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America and thank you to you for supporting our efforts here with the podcast, where we'll continue to bring you unique history and insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free membership, 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the activation code AIRHEAD247. So over the years, I've been, built a reputation on there. I've had multiple guys fly in and ride bikes home, uh, one of which happened just a couple of weeks ago. A guy bought an R50 Slash 5, and you know what those are all about, you know, 30 horsepower, 31 horsepower machine, uh, four-speed gearbox. He rode it all the way back to Netherland, Colorado. Oh, my God. 11,000 feet, right? Yeah, that's and way so, Yeah, that's way up in the Rockies, yeah. Yeah, so, so you know, and I... A 500cc bike, you know, I mean, that, that thing top speed in 1970. It was a short wheelbase R50 slash 5, which is kind of a rare bike. They didn't import a lot of R50 slash 5s to America um, because they were just, you know, town bikes, basically. And, um, you know, he made it safe and sound seven days. He banged it out, you know. You? And finally, at the end, he um, he uh, jumped on the interstate. I told him to take back roads the whole way, and he, he was a, he's a smart guy super sharp, sharp, retired engineer. He brought, like, spare tubes and tire irons. I was like, man, I, I knew I was going to love you, but I really love you already. And, um, yeah, so I, I had gone through the bike, you know, top-end reseal. We went ahead and, like, I pulled the gearbox, did the rear main seal, updated oil pump cover, you know, all the things that could possibly come up. It only had 18,000 original miles on it, but, you know, the seals were old. They, they were still, they were still, uh, supple and they would have been fine but you know just as preventative maintenance we just did through everything and new tires and you know i I lubed all the bearings and blah 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 new cables and all that stuff and um it was crazy it makes me nervous you know i mean always it's like i knew i had ridden the bike a good bit you know before the sale and bring a trailer and after the the, the sale you know and so i put miles on it and rode it and i knew that was super solid but still man you know it's like I make friends friends with these guys, and it makes me nervous. I mean, it's a dangerous world out there, you know. <laughs> did uh, did he pack some uh, needles or jets for when he got uh, up into the mountains, especially on those old slide type bangs? That's right. It has the tiny ones. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he didn't. We had those bikes. Um, you know, as you go up in altitude, obviously you're going to get rich, so you need to start leaning it out because you've got less air coming in, and they have four positions on the needle so he was able to to lean it out enough to get him home you know and then i think he's gonna he's he reached out to me last week and he's playing around with the jetting and getting it totally dialed um to to get all a whopping 30 ponies out of it. <laughs> yeah i hear you yeah short story like, man this bike is slow at altitude i said yeah man it's slow anyway it's slow at sea level man no kidding yeah i i took a trip on my slash five out to colorado in the early 90s and you know i was in my early 20s and really didn't know much uh at all other than i liked riding and so when i got into uh, denver and stuff i was like what the hell's going on you know i had i nobody told me that uh the thinner air was going to have an effect on how the bike ran and so i just dealt with it i was like yeah what the hell you know whatever i didn't care and, you know, I could go in parts of Wyoming. I was getting passed by RVs, you know, and I was. <laughs> oh, man. So I'm thinking, all right, whatever. I Anyway, so I wasn't there too terribly long. 
the interesting part about the story was I was on some road headed eastbound back into New Mexico, coming down off a plateau or something, uh, and I hit that magic spot at altitude, and the bike just opened right back up, and I was like, oh, my God, what the hell just happened? Uh, of course, when I got back from my trip, uh, you know, some older, wiser people told me, you dumbass, you know, th that's what happens when you go into... Yeah, <laughs> into, you got no air coming in, you're... you're yeah, yeah, another. higher elevations, but anyway, uh, so... Uh, so, yeah, and so, real quick on that, that is one of the coolest things, I mean, I love the whole thing, the whole dynamic, and, and the way Bring a Trailer works, but man, I've all the guys I've sold bikes to. I, I'm friends with these guys now. You know, it's so cool. I mean, I've met guys around America that uh, I would have never met otherwise. And now, you know, most of them we we text on a you know weekly basis. It's kind of like, hey, what's up? How's the bike? Or I've got a question. Or I want to put a new seat on it. Or you know, all that stuff. So you, you meet these guys that are like really into it. It's it's fantastic. That's great. And so you say you have a warehouse. Uh, slash shop uh, there in Charleston. Now, I know it's not like, you know, you're not a dealer, uh, sort of bring your bike here for mechanical restoration. It's your personal uh, sort right. of space. Is that right? That's right. Exactly. Yeah. And I work on my friends' bikes, you know, if they, I mean, I have lifts, you know, and I have like every specialty BMW tool under the sun and, you know, um, it's a it's pretty full service situation. I can do pretty much anything in here. You know, I've got milling machines and welders and you know all that stuff. So, um, so yeah, it, it's a it's a good spot. My friends come in. I help them with their bikes. Um, and and I offer to the guys I'm bring a trailer. And if, if if logistics work out, you know that I'll I'll maintain that particular bike uh, into perpetuum if they're so inclined. Oh wow. Yeah, so because I, I know the machines, and so it makes life easier. I mean, a lot of these shops these days, man, you know, they won't they won't work on the old bikes. The BMW dealers won't work on them flat out. No, I know. I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm doing this uh, uh, these interviews with folks and putting this uh, series together is to spotlight a lot of guys like you, uh, you know, the Ted Porters of the world, the Rick Jones uh, of the world, and and, and the like. Uh, who still do this uh, as independent uh, mechanics uh, and businessmen? So, um, yeah, it's you're 100 percent right. Uh, those those uh, modern shops don't even touch them. Um, so, okay, so yeah, I, I've seen some sort of background photos of your warehouse and, and workshop and the Bring a Trailer uh, pictures, and it looks like a really uh, cool place. Some nice art. Uh, it looks like a good place just to hang out crack a beer and and look at some bikes so kudos it's got a vibe definitely. yeah yeah kudos to you for putting that together um all right let's get you out of here on maybe uh, a few sort of quick fire questions don't feel you have to give me a one-word answer here but uh, you know here's the first one uh your mount rushmore meaning the four uh bmws you would put uh in that regard, the four bikes from the 1970 to 1995 era, you would put on the Mount Rushmore of BMWs. Okay, 75. Okay, so we got to throw in there um, a 1970 short wheelbase R75 slash five. The for, lead off, the lead, the lead off bike. I agree. That's the first one that came out. Yep. A lot of things changed. You know, they got rid of the bevel gears for the cam, you know, all that stuff. That was a monumental bike. So that, that's that. Number two, got to go with an R90S. 
I mean, when you sit on one of those, you know that they're just they just have magical DNA. It's similar to the R seventy five five, but it's different, right? Right, and of course, all it did to help uh, save the company, the motorcycle division, from going in the shitter. That's right. That's right. Uh, so there's there's two of them. Then the third one is going to be. I mean, it's similar to the R90s, but it's going to be it's going to be an R100 RS. I mean, the the bike with the fair the full fairing, you know, the the hundred cc the one liter engine, the five speed gearbox, just so smooth. Um, the snowflake wheels, I don't know, it's a classic. Last but not least, gotta throw this one up there to be the be the end of it. It's the R80 GS. Oh yes got to be the r80 good call i know i stayed in, i stayed in a tight era there but you know really for me at 1990 like the bmw's just and i parted ways like cause I, I still love an r100 gs to the max but even even the 91s got too heavy in the way that the fairing ties into the gas tank and aesthetically they started losing me with the graphics and everything else so like i i have a r100 rs from 89 that i absolutely love to death uh and so so that's where my my level of confidence with my knowledge with this stuff kind of comes to a screeching halt. So you're saying the Barney purple bike with the uh, gravel <laughs> and tire tracks didn't appeal to you aesthetically? That's the one we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving on. Uh, uh, if they, if you could go back again, 1970 to 95, Yeah. Uh, not necessarily, I don't need your the top one here, but what would be one design change or flaw BMW made in that era that you would go back to the designers and say, do this instead? Um, it's a pretty simple fix. The In the 80s bikes, the neutral indicator switch on the bottom of the gearbox, it's damn near impossible to get to you. They leak. They cause you just a world of hurt to get to those things. I'd say come up with a... a skinnier one that you can get a, you know, 17 millimeter wrench on and get that thing out without having either a pull the, the spacer on the back of the engine or, you know, God forbid, pull the whole transmission to get the thing out or B make a better switch that, you know, doesn't have that little plastic insert on the bottom. I mean, I know what they were going for, but that that's an Achilles heel on those bikes. And so, it's not like the end of the world, but man, it's a pain in the neck. So you're saying just, uh, uh, mid eighties on or just the whole, uh, the whole run. Yeah, I think 80s, I think they carried that on into the 90s. Like I said, I really don't know much about the 90s bikes, man. I've never owned one. I'm sure that I've worked on one, but I can't remember. But mostly, in I think in with the 1980 is when they came up with the that particular switch that I'm talking about. Under the transmission, it's, it's really difficult to get to. Maybe 79 R100 RS has it, but I think it's more the 80s bikes. Yeah, I mean, I've replaced uh, a few of those, you know. I've you know got, what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, I've got a 75 uh, R90S. So, first of all, you know, I made the mistake. I needed the earlier type neutral switch as opposed to the right. later type. You know, uh, and that was a transition year bike. So, I, even with my best research and note-taking, uh, I still ordered a few wrong parts. And then the same... And then you got it in there, and then it was wrong. It stayed on all the time? Yeah, exactly. Oh, God. Yeah. That like you just got kicked in the ball yeah right? it's it totally especially after you know because i had the whole bike apart 
you know, rear, you know, rear main seal oil pump out. You know, that was one of the last things I did, putting everything back together. And, uh, yeah, I ended up having to yank the transmission again. But, uh, you know, same thing. I've got an R80 GS. Uh, so, I was, first of all, glad to uh, see you mention two of those on the Mount Rushmore. But um, same kind of thing, that neutral, uh, the neutral switch, uh in, it's in that there's two designs and one of them's in a brass housing and one's in more of an aluminum housing. Uh, yeah. David, what I've ended up doing is when I put those new ones in, I just get some clear epoxy and just drench that transition from the threaded part uh, to that plastic part where the terminals are. Cause I've yeah. found from my, what happens with me, I'm in a real rural area. So I'm crossing creeks all the time. Uh, you know, less than, you know, I'm not just not on the street. So, and I've, in the six years, I've got, I went through two of those switches on the GS. So, oh, Lord. yeah. So the third one I did, it's lasted a good long while now is just, I just basically douse that thing in epoxy. So that plastic. That's what I've heard guys with JB well, they just yeah. put it and yeah, just fill it all in and it, it makes life better. Definitely. But, you know, I, I'm glad that you feel my pain with that because man, that, that is, <laughs> That is just one of those things. And I've, I, you can actually get that rear spacer out of the motor, you know, and you can pull it out. But, man, it, it is it is tough. It is tough any way you look at it. It is. And, you know, you can shrink it, put it in the freezer so it'll fit back in better. But, yeah, it, it is a pain. Uh, okay. Uh, what was my other thing? All right. So uh, where do you think cafe, the, a lot of these cafe custom bikes are going to be in 10 years? Um, you know, I still think that culture is going to be around, right? I mean, I get what the guys are doing. You know, it's definitely kind of a take on the, you know, Tritons and all the, the Norton specials that everyone was building back in the 50s and 60s, and now they're doing it with the Beamers. And, uh, I mean, it's not really my cup of tea. I've built some of them for people. Um, aesthetically, I just am more of a purist. You know, I like the way they look, you know, back back in the day. But they're still going to be kids. And, and I will say that I'm excited for the young bloods, the 20s and 30-year-old kids that are having an interest in the Beamers. And if it takes them, like, you know, chopping them up and doing their own thing to them to get them involved in the airhead scene, then you know what? Who am I to pass any judgment on them, right? I agree. I agree 100% with you on that one. All right. Your best uh, roadside repair when you're out on a, on a ride. Man, I can change it like a mother <laughs> <laughs> even with the even with the uh uh short stubby tire irons and the toolkit i can do it man it's all about it's all about like just technique i've gotten so good at it and, and you know i have a, t a pneumatic tire machine now in my shop and and uh but man i i can i can change one so quickly my friends are always blown away so, yeah. Uh, yeah, I can do and, and without mangling the rim, you know, I mean, that's the other part. Wow. I, I think that'd be a, a good YouTube video to see. All right. Uh, last one. And this is kind of a silly question, but I, I it's going to be an interesting poll. I'm going to take when I'm doing these interviews is what, uh, what oil do you use on your airheads? Uh, Valvoline BR one zinc additive, right? Um, either straight 30, straight 40, straight 50, depending on your temperature where you live. Interesting. All right, good enough. That, that stuff, is, you can get it anywhere. You know, it's relatively inexpensive. Uh, I can't, I tell everyone, change your oil often, man. It's so 
you know, they hold almost nothing, two quarts on the old bikes, you know. I mean, just change it every couple of months, just change it, you know, especially after I do a slinger job for you. Like, for the love of God, just, like, make this bike's life easier. And um, the flat tappet motors love that zinc stuff in the, the ad, that's been added to the oil. And uh, the, the, the bikes, it, the multi-grades, to me, they just are asking for leaks, you know. Like, with the 2050, like, who knows if that oil is more like 20 weight or 50 weight, I mean, without being too, like, oil science, I just feel like you stick with the straight grade and you're good to go. Interesting. All right. Duly noted. Duly noted on that one. Well, uh, look, David, it's been really great catching up with you here uh, today. I'm glad we got a chance uh, to cross paths a few years ago. Uh, even though you didn't buy the motorcycle I was selling, that's fine. It, went, it went to a great guy uh, in Wisconsin. Um, I'm, I have to say, I'm really impressed with all you've done on Bring a Trailer. I'm impressed with uh, the bikes you find, uh, all the work you do with them, your passion for everything. And one of these days, I don't know if I'll ever buy one of your bikes, but I hope one of these days maybe we can cross paths. I'd love to see uh, your shop down there. If folks want to get in touch with you about something uh of course they can message you on bring a trailer do you have any other uh ways to connect with folks yeah the best way i don't have a website but the best thing is instagram and i'm on there all the time and i put photographs of the bikes and the projects and all that stuff and my handle is mr lee zero zero so it's m r l e e and then numeric zero zero and uh, you can find me there, and you can message me there, and we can chat. We can talk about motorcycles and music and bicycles and whatever else you want to talk to. Wonderful. Well, David, look, uh, thanks again for the time today and continued success. Okay, man. Great talking to you, bro. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Thanks to David Lee for joining us, and be sure to look for his bike listings on Bring a Trailer. A link to his Instagram account is in the About section of this podcast. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our theme music is from Jimbo Mathis. You can find him on the web at therealjimbomathis.com. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time. <laughs>